Alleluia, Christ is ascended. Not, not quite the same ring to it, does it? Something seems a little bit off about that. Um, and, and in fact, when we think about the ascension, it seems like a kind of cruel joke. And I don't know that we see the same kind of comfort from it that we should. Now, Jesus spends three years with his disciples only to go away. As Jesus conquers sin and death and hell, he has to do this alone. And so the disciples endure three great days of sorrow. But then, then there is a great joy. Now Jesus returns, risen, glorified, triumphant, and perhaps even a little bit playful. He seems to enjoy appearing to surprised disciples. He even invites them to poke around a bit. Forty days of eating and rejoicing and comforting and laughing. The disciples took joy in wondering where Jesus might surprise them next. But then on the Mount of Olives, as he promises that he will be with them always, He levitates up to the sky and hides behind a cloud. Almost as soon as Jesus is back, he has departed again. In the midst of his conversation and promise, he leaves. So much for the Easter joy. For the last 40 days, we've been observing the resurrection of our Lord by having this paschal candle lit. But now it stands cold and dark. And unless there is a baptism or funeral here, it will remain unlit until the Easter vigil next year. The church, too, it seems, has come down from its high of Easter joy Yet when the apostles leave the site of Jesus' ascension, they return to Jerusalem with great joy because they know that this ascension of Jesus is good news. He would no longer be in the world precisely the same way that they are. For three years, he's been part of their world, fishing trips, miracles, parables, traveling, and eating together. But now he would leave them. He would be with them in a better way. He would fill all things. He would be their entire life. Their whole world would revolve around him. Now, I I know that we, we talk about the ascension of Jesus as comforting, but I think there's still something about it that makes it hard to believe as good news. Wouldn't it still seem better for Jesus to be in the world just like you are? Wouldn't it be better to have him walking right next to you, talking to him and him making all things right? Wouldn't it be better to have the miracles among us today? To ask Jesus directly, 
what do your parables mean? And what about all those things that people tell us that Jesus didn't talk about, like abortion and gender dysphoria and closed communion? Wouldn't it be great just to get a a straight answer from Jesus' own mouth? Of course, this thinking ignores the fact that we actually have the Lord's clear teaching on these issues. And if Jesus were in the world just like you, it would not be good. Jesus could only be found in one place at a time. If he were here with you, he couldn't also be with your far away and departed loved ones. So part of the answer is that when Jesus goes away, he gets to be with everyone. But compared to Jesus actually walking around with you, I think this still feels like a little bit of a downgrade. He might be with everyone, but they can't see him. They can't touch him. They can't feel his embrace. So let's, let's look at this a different way. Imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus walking around in our world. Usually he was surrounded by a crowd. That meant that even when people could hear Jesus, most couldn't touch him. He was too far away. Only a select few could stand next to Jesus at one time. And even when people could get close to, the, close to him, he remained separate from them. When Jesus was here on earth, his body had a defined border. So that when Jesus takes the little children up in his arms, he still remains separate from them. And when John reclined at Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, they were close together, but John's proximity to Jesus' body didn't make them one. Or at the cross, the soldiers covered in the blood of Jesus, they don't get unity with Jesus. And even if Thomas sticks his fingers into those wounds, that doesn't connect him with Jesus. But now, now as Jesus ascends into heaven, he takes up the divine authority that he had set aside. Now he fills all things. That means he's no longer limited by time and space. That means that Jesus, as true God and true man, is with you always. That means whenever you live, wherever you are, Jesus is with you. This man reigns on the throne of heaven. This man is with your faraway friends and your loved ones departed in Christ. This man walks with you. And all of these things at the same time. His voice of absolution can be heard throughout the world simultaneously. His body and his blood can be on 10,000 altars at the same time. No matter where or when his word is spoken, Jesus is there. That means he hasn't left you as orphans. 
That means now he's closer than ever in his word and sacraments. There you are completely united with him. You in him and him in you. No separation at all. Perfect unity. But even though Jesus is with you, you're not home yet either. Though you live here now, this isn't your permanent place of residence. Because you have been begotten of God, you are from a different place. You are, as Ezekiel describes, people of a new heart. You don't love what the people of the world love. You don't speak like the people of the world speak. You don't conduct yourselves as people of the world. Because although you are in the world, you are not of it. And that is bothersome to the world. That means as a Christian, you will never entirely get along with the world. You will never feel completely at home. The devil hates Christians. The devil hates this church. He hates your baptism, your marriage, your children. He hates you. He hates to see your children baptized and received at the altar. He hates to see you reading your Bible and praying. The devil is at war with you. But the world is at peace with him. That means that part of being a Christian is being hated by the world. That means the world will take delight in despising you and harming you simply because you believe in Jesus. But that also doesn't mean that you look at the world as your enemy. Rather, you know that the persecution Jesus describes is to be expected. And you also see these people who speak against you as people for whom Christ died. That means you love them and you speak to them of Jesus and hope that they too will be given a new heart and become a fellow citizen with you of the heavenly kingdom. It also means that you know that you won't have peace in this world because it's not your home. You don't have any allegiance to it. Some of you have known this feeling from traveling abroad. You aren't part of the nation that you visit. And this is true also of you spiritually. The world is not your home. You are a pilgrim. But you are also not a wanderer not wasting time and drifting along. You have a particular destination and goal, for you are here to be connected with Jesus, to be made holy by his gifts. And neither are you what we might call an American Christian, as though that were a thing. Rather, you are a Christian and you live in this nation. That, by the way, is also why we moved the American flag out of this sacred space. As a Christian, your allegiance isn't to that flag. Just as 
just if a, a Christian from some other part of the world were to come and join us today, we wouldn't expect him to pledge allegiance to our flag. In fact, throughout the world, having a political flag in sacred space is generally understood as the political authority reigning over the church. Nowhere else in the world is this practice considered proper. So being a Christian in a particular place means that we, we honor the customs of our host nation as much as possible. But this is sacred space. This is where heaven meets earth. Thus, church is, in a sense, a foreign embassy, an embassy of heaven. The church and its liturgy have always been countercultural that is different and distinct from the world's culture because we are from another world, a different reality, and the sacred space where that happens to us reflects that. Last Sunday, we heard Jesus promise to give us his own Father. At the Ascension, Jesus gives us himself. And at Pentecost, celebrated next Sunday, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. Taken together, this pushes us forward to also confess the Trinity, as we will do in great detail in two weeks. But today, Jesus emphasizes the promise of the Holy Spirit's work. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will bear witness about Jesus. The apostles also will bear witness the Holy Spirit working through their preaching. And Jesus says that he tells the apostles all of this, including the part about persecution, so that they will remember his words. Their witness will be written down for us, and we will hear and believe and confess their witness. And as we hear his words, we are also to remember them. All throughout the scriptures, the Lord exhorts his people to remember. Remember his laws, remember his promises, remember his works, remember. Now, perhaps you hear this exhortation and you think of memory as sort of mere mental activity or having to do with the management of facts and information, as though even catechesis were itself just about the transmission of information. But consider a day like Memorial Day that we observe tomorrow. Memory is even in the basis of the name. So how do you remember Memorial Day? Do you rightly honor that day by simply reviewing facts of history in your head? Or is there something more to it? You know that to remember Memorial Day is more than an action of the mind. It also has the idea of action. There are things spoken and done. There is a bodily response. And this is true biblically too. Because I remember God's law, I see that I have not measured up to it. 
because I remember God's promises. I rejoice to believe them, and I learn to love God's law and to desire to do it. Because I remember God's works, I am glad to tell them to others. That's what the Lord has in mind in Deuteronomy 6. When you teach these things to your children, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and get up, that these things that God had said would become part of you, that they would shape who you are, they would permeate your way of speaking and inform and govern your behavior. You see, memory for God, too, isn't just about his mind. All throughout the scriptures, whenever God remembers something or someone, it means he is about to act to save his people. God remembers Noah and rescues him. God remembers Rachel and opens her womb. God remembers his promise, and he brings his people forth in joy. When God remembers, God acts. And above all the things that God remembers, he remembers his own name. Where he puts his name, God says, he is there to bless. That's what he has done in your baptism. Can God forget his own name? Then neither can he forget you, for you are in him. He has touched you with the cleansing water of holy baptism. He has bound you to himself. That's why Jesus says that where two or three gather in his name, he is there in the midst of them. You hear his voice and his word, and you pray to your Father directly. And now, here at this altar, Jesus remembers. He puts his do this in remembrance of me into you. That means that you get more than 40 days of living with the resurrected Jesus. You get an eternity of living and eating and rejoicing and celebrating with him. And you take joy in wondering where Jesus might surprise you next. In this way, Jesus is closer to you than he ever could be just walking around here on earth. Jesus is one flesh with you. And this means that now you are a little image of Christ going out into the world. And going forth, you do what Jesus has done. You love and show hospitality to your neighbors. You speak of the works that God has done for you, not as a burden, but as enlivened by Christ, inspired by his Holy Spirit, acting as true sons of your Father in heaven. And the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.